0: within the first century. We know all that. But with Paul and with his career, if you will, we can pinpoint it with almost exact certitude um, from the book of Acts, uh, certainty from the book of Acts. And there's a couple of ways that we do this. Um, One is a passage in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 18. And this is kind of the the account of the the goings-on at the time of Paul. He just finishes Uh, in in Athens, where he's in an encounter with the Greeks there. And then he goes to this place, Corinth, where he would later plant a church in Acts chapter 18, um, verses one and onwards. Let me read a little bit of it for you. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Corinth is a real place. You can go there today. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius that's the emperor Claudius, had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. And Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them, and every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. That phrase, Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, is a clue. And we know that this is a real thing that really happened Uh, because uh, the Roman uh, writer Suetonius tells us in the year 49 that since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, that is Christ, Claudius expelled them from Rome. We know when this took place. Nobody disputes the Roman writer Suetonius. We know that Claudius was a real guy, and he did, in fact, expel the Jews from Rome, and this dovetails perfectly With what's being said here in the book of Acts. That's very early. That's the year 49. And then we read further as we look into the same chapter of the book of Acts uh, that there's a mention of another key historical guy there. I'll just read some more of the story so you get a feel. When Silas and Timothy, these are Paul's kind of uh, companions, uh, came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching and testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. You see the change in his life, huge change. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook his clothes in protest, and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. Paul leaves the synagogue. He goes next door to the house of a fellow named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. We have a mention of a baptism that took place there. And then Paul starts giving his story and he says, um, uh, God has called me in this vision. Um, and, and do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you. And no one's going to attack you because I have many people in this city. And Paul stays in the city of Corinth for a year and a half and teaches them. And then in verse 12, another key clue. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. That phrase, when Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia, is another major clue to the career of this man. And I'm making a big deal of this. I don't want to bore you, but I want you to see how, how we can pinpoint uh, the, the dates here. There's a, an inscription that's going to be on the screen behind me that mentions that this fellow Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia in the year 50. And this dovetails perfectly with this phrase from Acts chapter 18, verse 12. And so we know with almost absolute certainty that the Apostle Paul arrived in Corinth, as it says in Acts, in the year 50, uh, again from this inscription, and um, that he is writing... To the church of the Thessalonians that early. I make a big deal of this because it means that he is writing that book uh, of 1 Thessalonians, which you can read in the New Testament, only 17 years after Jesus allegedly rose from the dead. Now, that's a very, very short time at that time. At that time, that's like, wow, that's tiny, tiny, tiny amount of time. And he's writing things that can be checked by the people of the time. And he's writing them with it. And then we can produce in the New Testament and stand in front of enemies. They breathe and they would die more quickly. We see this side of Jesus, but when they came to Jesus, it's strange that he was doing this, this quickly. And one of the things, well, and then we've got a big problem. Well, if it's, but Christ has indeed been raised. This is a powerful, powerful piece of evidence, the transformation of this man so he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, stand trial for his belief in Jesus. He would eventually uh, head to Rome and, and bold enough to write all of these books and these letters and his resurrection from the dead. He literally would die there because of the things that he believed, which he claimed to have experienced. Wow, stole him away. While you were so late that it can't be checked, he's bold enough to do this very, very early. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Well, what are the alt? That's pretty impressive. It's not like this is in the 21st century, okay? You are not stupid people who I'm looking at. Can you- that's like, wow, that's tiny, tiny, tiny alternatives that we have to this. I mean, it rose from the dead, like really physically rose from the dead. Well, what are the alternatives? Jesus Christ of Nazareth actually rose Easter. Like clockwork, you always see the alternatives. Pick up the latest magazine this early, a mere 17 years. You don't really see. I love the Easter season because every clockwork, and you see all of the same idea of Jesus, his friends, his enemies, those over and over and over again. Every year, the people who allegedly experienced the resurrection, of the alternatives to the resurrection, every year, it's like... Being uh, go on social media, look, change, you'll discover, if you look at them, they come in history. That's amazingly fast. What in the All these alternative ideas to whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, and I want to go uh, through them with you very I'm in a little bit of different wrapping paper, but there all would be a set of the tomb-occupied theories, all right? This means that his body was and maybe is still in the tomb. First one is the un very, very quickly. Um, the first And this is the idea that the Romans, the executioners of Jesus, did in fact crucify him, but they took his body and they threw it into an unknown tomb theory, unknown tomb. So, I mean, his his body's somewhere, but nobody knows where it is. And the the idea here is that, well, this is what the Romans did with pit into an unmarked grave and his body's gone. And they would just throw them into, into unmarked graves. And so maybe that's what they did with Jesus. We know that in many cases, they would execute these people. Is that, well, you've got this movement starting in, in Jerusalem, and it's spreading very, very quickly. If they've got a, uh, this is the idea, the, the problem with the theory, why don't they just pull it out? Why don't the Romans just say, uh, excuse me, but this, this whole idea is nonsense. Here's the body. We have a body that they can produce to stop it, would we'll die. But this was never, never done. And as we looked at a few weeks ago, we have found the bones of a crucified victim. The only victim of a crucifixion uh, with the bones ever found. We found them. And we thought, so let's move the bodies so they don't claim. And while you were sleeping at your post... The, this in the bones of the man who we found, we can see that his. Li- and they say, well, we'll acknowledge that the tomb of Jesus said, well, you know, they're going to... These Jewish people are g- still fused into the ankle. And we looked at this. Maybe it's the wrong tomb. Maybe the disciples are a sum of money. Telling them, here's what's a very, very strange idea, this unknown tomb. Uh, a few weeks ago, so uh, it's just they just made a mistake. You know, as many tombs you need to say. We'll give you money. This is These tombs cut out in the rock, and they would roll these huge... I don't know if any of you have ever been to a cemetery before. Anybody raise your hand? Okay, one day you will be at one. Just, just, just reminding you, okay? Uh, well, I've been to cemeteries many, many times before. Can I tell you that families are very, very specific about where their loved ones' remains are buried. They know exactly where they are. Are we expected to believe that these disciples who followed this man and gave up of these people, they would overturn these Romans the place and say the man is dead? Their lives were so like dense. They were dumb. Again, why didn't the Romans parade the body so that it would all just end? I mean, it is a moved body. So the Romans, a weak idea. Then you have another one, the dead. These were all inserted into the New Testament. When they went to the tomb of Jesus and they left later. We've looked at that already. And we've seen that the New Testament was out and you know published, as it were, and being circulated so fast that there's no time for the introduction of all these extra stories, uh, albeit supernatural stories. So it's a, it's a very, very weak theory. And then we have uh, another one, the hallucination. Idea. So all these people who allegedly encountered Jesus, including Paul himself, including the 500 people who Paul says saw Jesus at one time, most of whom are still alive, he says, all those people hallucinated. And they all saw what they wanted to see. It was a a big ruse. And again, the people are just a little bit dense, smoking a little bit too much magic mushroom in the first century. And they're just hallucinating the whole thing. Uh, I mean, if it's again, if it's a hallucination and you've got a body, why don't you produce it? If it's a hallucination, why is it that you've got a fellow like um, Thomas who says, unless I see the nail prints in his hands and I touch them, I will not believe. Clearly, the guy did not, he, it wasn't his intention to believe. A hallucination? I mean, that's a, another weak one. And I'm not exaggerating. These are, the, these are the common theories and the common alternatives. And then you have uh, 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 theories that are sleeping. So you slept on your post and involve a tomb that actually might be empty. True. And if the authorities move the body, well, why did? Here's the first one. They stole the body. The disciples wanting to perpetuate this very, very short time at that time. At that time, it was a big mess. So, why didn't they just produce uh, Matthew 28 actually has this theory in verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened, i.e., the stone. You really be expected to believe that customs and they would, you know, people would stop making priests had met with the elders and devised a plan. They gave the soldiers, most likely the Roman soldiers, what you say, and don't change the story. His disciples came during the night... And the governor gets to Pontius Pilate. We'll take care of Pilate's who opposed him, those who followed him. He's writing, made it look like he rose from the dead by stealing. Disciples came and stole him. And if the report gets to the government of acts of because of the church and the belief systems, then it will keep you out of trouble. Because we know that you're supposed to die and face the death penalty for sleeping on your post, but we'll take care of that. So the soldiers took the money. As they And did what they were told. And this is the story that was widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. To this very day in the 21st century, it is still a story that is circulated that the body of Jesus was stolen. Have any of you ever been robbed while you were sleeping? While you were sleeping? No, the thieves came into your house and robbed you while you were sleeping. Any of you? Okay, if you were sleeping, how would you know for sure that thieves came in and robbed your stuff? If you woke up in the morning and said, my stuff is gone, well, you might make an assumption that thieves stole your stuff, but you wouldn't know for sure. You're sleeping. Okay? So it's a bit of a strange idea, this. And again, if the disciples stole the body, wow, they're, they're putting their lives on the line And being persecuted and all of them really executed for what they knew was something that was not true. They're trying to foist a hoax on the world by saying that the body of Jesus is is risen from the dead when they really stole it. I mean, this is a very weak idea. Well, how about this one? The authorities see anything like that at that time. At that time, allegedly saw him, or they saw angels. I mean, they're gonna make up this thing about Jesus. They claim that he was a good, but that's one of the theories. Another one is well, maybe use the body in order to prevent this idea of a resurrection, a lie coming to the people. The news stations, and they always have all year. It comes out, and the ideas don't really they just produce it while the church is exploding across the Roman Empire. We read stories in the book that he was put, and if they didn't, let's say they were, and he's writing them within the time of the body and say, here it is, and parade it all over in the movie that we played the case for Christ. And and then you have the swoon theory. This is a popular one, and you see this actually. So, you know, they took him off, and they put him in the tomb. This is the idea that, well, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He swooned. He passed out. Uh, they thought he was dead from the dead. Um, well, sure, but he, he kind of got well again. And when he looked good enough, uh, you know, he went out to the people, and it looked like he'd been raised. So the Romans didn't miss when they crucified. The problem with that is that we have uh, we have Romans to deal with and r- the Roman batting average with with crucifixions was like a thousand of the victim on the cross so that they wouldn't be someone. And they had this practice where they would take a kind of a baseball bat and break the legs. Legs have been severely broken and we know from the it was empty, but there's there's ways around that and able to push themselves up anymore so that they can you see the bones, you can see the, the iron nails. He says that they saw that he was already dead the gospel of John, uh, that this was the case, and the Romans went and did this to the two criminals on either side right here, and the job was done. So the church has absolute certainty that the apostle Paul arrived perfectly with this phrase from Acts chapter 18, verse 12. And so we know with almost and um, that he is writing to the, in Corinth, as it says in Acts, in the year 50, uh, again, from this inscription, Thessalonians, which you can read in the New Testament, the church of the Thessalonians that early. I make a big deal of this because it means dead. And so what do they do? They take a spear and they pierce his side. And out of his side, we're told, comes blood and water. And we saw it in the in the movie with the medical doctor there. Well, that would mean that the spear most likely went into the heart and pierced the sack around the heart, hence the water and then the blood. And so the the man medically, from a medical point of view, was as dead as dead can be on that cross. So the idea that he swooned and survived a Roman crucifixion to convince the world that he had been raised from the dead is probably more amusing than anything else. And the last one is not often used anymore, but I think it's probably the most interesting one, the most clever one, is called the Passover plot. And there was a book in the seventies that came out about this, and this was the idea was that Jesus deliberately plotted to fulfill all of these prophecies that you see in the Old Testament, we went over some of them on Friday, and he deliberately plotted to fulfill all of these things to make himself look like the Messiah, and he was in cahoots with one of the disciples to try and pull off this plan, and uh, His plans were all foiled, uh, even though the idea was well we 'll put you on the cross and you 'll get up on the cross and and we'll, we'll stage a resurrection because we'll give you some narcotics on the cross so you won't feel the pain as much. This is a true theory, that, or at least a theory that people truly believe in. And, uh, but the, the plans were foiled because they stuck that spear in his side. And when they stuck the spear in his side, they killed him. Uh-oh, big problem. And so they had to find a way around that to make it look like Jesus had been raised from the dead. It's called the Passover plot. This these are all the theories, the alternate theories that are out there. Believe it or not, and they come in different wrapping paper, of course, but this is basically what you're going to read, what you're going to see in, in the magazines, and the books that come out at Easter time, on social media. That's pretty well all of them. There's one common thread with every single one of these theories, and that is that every alternate theory acknowledges at least a part of the story to be true. They go that far. They say, well, well, we'll let your Jesus be crucified and put him in a tomb, fine, but he's not raised from the dead. Well, we'll let you have this part of the story, but the rest of it is legend. Well maybe he was maybe it was the passover plot maybe it was this maybe it was that but every single one of those those ideas gives a piece of the easter story but not the whole thing and the problem with this when you read the story is that you cannot clip little pieces and parts out like that The way that it's written and the way that it's it's composed, you, you don't have the luxury of accepting one part of it while rejecting the other. You can accept the whole thing or you can reject the whole thing, but you can't do both. Let me give you an example, okay, of this. When we talked about the trial on Friday night of Jesus, there's a charge that they brought against Jesus of sorcery. And they said, this man claimed to be able to destroy the temple of Jerusalem and raise it in three days. We see this in the trial. And we see that even the two people who said that, even they couldn't agree on the statement. Well, nobody would deny that that took place in the trial. You've got these two people, they're inventing something that Jesus allegedly said. Nobody will deny that that took place. The problem is it's a distortion of what Jesus originally said. Jesus said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it again in three days. And the writer of John tells us that Jesus is referring to his own body. He's talking about his own death and his own resurrection. Well, that's a prediction that he's making. The man is standing there telling his enemies, that, that I will be killed and that I will be raised from the dead in three days. And yet in a trial, they take the statement, they twist it around, they turn it on its head, and they accuse the guy of sorcery. No one will deny the natural part there, but they will deny vehemently that Jesus actually predicted his own death and resurrection. That's the way the Gospels are written. You've got these things fused too closely together. So the challenge for us, and we've talked about this in previous weeks, you cannot, no matter how hard you try, you cannot read the gospel story, the old story of Jesus dying and being raised from the dead and cut and paste out what you want. You're either going to accept the whole thing or you're going to throw the whole thing out. You must make a decision. You are at a crossroads, and every single person in this room is at a crossroads. You must decide what you will do with the story of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. I would submit to you that it does matter. It matters very, very critically. If this man rose from the dead, then everything that we understand about life changes. And it gets turned to a direction and it gets turned on its head in many, many ways. This is a huge, huge issue. What does the New Testament teach us if Jesus rose from the dead and if that tomb is empty today? Number one, it means that I and it means that you can be a so-called new creation. The Apostle Paul, the same man who we met at the beginning wrote this to the church in Corinth. And he died for all, speaking of Jesus, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised from the dead. No longer live for themselves, but for this Jesus. And in verse 16, so from now on we regard no one From a worldly point of view. We don't look at even people the same. Though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Therefore if anyone is in Christ. He or she is a new creation. The new has has come. And the old has gone. Every single person. If Jesus has been raised from the dead. Has the opportunity to be transformed. And to become a new creation, as the Apostle Paul uh, writes to these people in the church in Corinth. And he would know. He would know about what that felt like. He would know about what that means. Because he himself had this past behind him. A very, very curious and very, very dark past. And he would know what it felt like to become that new creation and have his sins forgiven and be made right with God and be able to have a fresh start, as it were, with God. He writes to the church of Rome. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins. So the idea, the story that we see in the Bible is that all of humanity is cut off from God morally. We're we're morally uh, 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 stuck in that we cannot have a connection with God. We cannot have a relationship with God. He's there, but we cannot connect with him because of our sins. They've cut us off from God. It's kind of like um, rust on a car that eats the car from the inside out. And this is what sin does to our lives, and it ultimately separates us from God for all eternity. He was delivered over to death for our sins, the Bible says, and was raised to life. Why? For our justification. This is a fancy word. It means you can think of it this way. Just as if I never sinned. So God can look at you in this room. And say whatever your past is. Whatever you have done. God can look at you as clean. He can make you a new creation. And he can look at you and say. This is a clean person. In my eyes morally. And you can have a relationship, a connection, and new life with God. This is what the empty tomb means. Number two, it means that justice is coming. Justice is coming. In Acts chapter 17, which uh, we read chapter 18, but in Acts chapter 17, the same guy, Paul, is in front of the Greeks in Athens. And he's looking around at everything that they have there. And he sees all of these different idols and these different gods. And he's trying to find a way to tell them about this Jesus. And he says, I see you're very, very religious people. I've walked and I've looked carefully at your objects of worship. And I even found an altar that says to an unknown God. I see this amongst you, he says to them. And he says, what you don't know and who you don't know as the unknown God, I'm going to tell you who he is. And this is what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives life and breath and everything else to everyone. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit all the earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him. And perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And then he quotes some of their own poets who said, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And watch what he says next. Therefore, since we are God's offspring... We should not think that divine beings like gold or silver or stone or an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to change, to change the way that they think. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. By the man he has appointed, he has given proof. Of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So he's arguing because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth from the dead, justice is coming. Look around at the world that we see. I mean, just look outside the the, the window and see what's out there. I mean, if you could go into all of those homes and into all of those buildings and see the injustice that is happening, if you can go and look as far as Montreal, and maybe you could see even a little bit beyond Montreal there, there's an awful lot of injustice, let me tell you. There's an awful lot of things that you look and you say, wow, if there's a God in heaven, what in the world is he doing? Because the world seems to be a very unjust place. And Paul would agree. But he would say, there is coming a day when justice will come. And we know this because Jesus has been raised from the dead. You're so quiet. Are you with me so far? Okay. The last last reason this is important for us. Because the tomb of Jesus is empty, one day my tomb will be empty. One day I'm not going to be there. My remains... (laughs) will not be there you say you're as crazy as as the apostle paul perhaps well you're let me tell you what he wrote to the church in thessalonica again this would have been in 50 a.d really early after the resurrection brothers and sisters he's going to talk about death here and all of you believe me are going to run across the curtain of death at one point or another brothers and sisters we do not want you to be ignorant God will somehow bring with Jesus at some point in the future. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. That's the second coming of Jesus, the whole event of the second coming. And if you believe in a, what I'll, I'll use the term rapture, this could be referring to that. Those who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have died. How will this happen? The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. How can he come down if he's dead? His point is he's alive with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up in the air to meet with them in the clouds and meet with the Lord in the air. And we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. He's arguing that because Jesus has been raised from the dead, those who follow him one day will be raised from the dead as well. You say, that's crazy. That's impossible. Well, if Jesus rose from the dead, then I would argue that it is possible, very possible. As I said, the whole thing changes. You and I are left with a choice 21 centuries later or 20 centuries later, what will we do with the person of Jesus of Nazareth? Will we, will we say he was a, well a teacher, a prophet, a rabbi, and put him in a grave somewhere, and put him in a tomb, and find an explanation to keep him there? Or maybe we'll say, oh, well, the tomb was empty, but we can find a way around that, and will we leave it at that? Or will we follow him as this man Paul did? Or will we turn our lives over to him? Or will we say, the way we look at life is now completely changed. Will we accept the gift of forgiveness that God offers to us? Yes or no. This is the question that we all answer. And you say, well, I don't want to answer. Well, even by not answering, you've already answered. You have to make a decision. Either you're going to go one way, all the way, or you're going to go the other way, all the way, but there's no middle ground God has not left it uh, ambiguous for us. So as is kind of a custom that we do around here, whenever we finish a series, I always give people a chance to choose and a chance to decide whether to say yes to Christ or perhaps not. But I always give people a chance to do that. So what I want to do as we close before the band comes up to lead us in one more song is I want to give you a chance to make a decision for Jesus, this day, Easter Sunday, uh, 2017. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way. I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray a really, really simple prayer with you. And if you, if, if this is your time, and I believe that there are things that are going on in people's lives in this room uh, that you know, this message for you, this is like, wow, it's really appropriate. If this is the time and this is the moment where you say, I want to make a faith decision for Christ, you can acknowledge this prayer. You can pray it in your mind or out loud, whatever you want. And when you do that, and when you do that with conviction, that's the beginning. And that's the moment where God literally comes into your life. We saw it in the movie, Uh, to those who believed on Jesus, to those who received him, He gave them the right to be called children of God, believe, receive and become a child of God. It's that simple. You don't need to be baptized in water to become a Christian. You should be after you do, but you don't have to be. You don't have to come and stand at the front and cry. It's a decision that you make. It's a personal conviction that you make. So I'm going to pray a prayer with you. You can close your eyes if you want to. And if you agree with it, you can respond in one of two ways. You can take that card and you can check off the box that you see there. Or you can send me a text because I know most of you have cell phones. And just just text this to me, said yes to God. And we'll, we'll have a conversation after that. So I'm going make it so, so easy for you. I won't even know who's doing this in the room. Because really, this is ultimately between you and God. It's not between you and me. It's ultimately between you and God. And if you want to make that decision today, I'm going to open the door for you right now. Jesus, I come to you. And I acknowledge that you came and that you died for me. And that you rose from the dead. And I ask that you would come into my life. Whatever that means. Whatever that looks like. That you would come into my life. And that you would forgive me. And that you would make me into that new person. Believing that the old is gone. And the new has come. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer. Send me the text, fill out the card, you can put the card in my hand at the end, and we're going to have a conversation. If you'd stand with me, please, and I'd like the band, if they're around, I know half of them got kids, and the kids might be <laughs> kids might be all over the place, but if the band is around, can you please play something up awesome. as, we, as we get set to leave here, and uh, we're in no rush to leave. You can hang around, you can have coffee, I'll be at the back. I'd love to meet you, especially if you're new. And uh, get to know you a little bit, at least your first name. Father, we praise you today and we thank you for your love for us. Uh, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. But God, for sinners, you went to the cross and you died. And you were raised from the dead to make us new people. May we celebrate that and may that have an impact on our lives even in the 21st century. Amen. Amen.